friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. excited to get to be part of this sermon series on the mothers of Jesus and I just want to thank Jonathan wherever oh, I see you, um, for doing this because I've already heard from so many people who have been deeply impacted by this by hearing these women's stories and I just think it is unique and important I, I've never heard a series on these women before so it, it really feels like a special thing to get to be part of um, so we're just going to continue this morning um, in, with this genealogy in Matthew 1 is where we find the names of these five women. And the New Testament begins with these words, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And then we get this big long list of names that on the surface just looks like a boring list of names. But if we dig a little deeper, we see that there's so much depth and richness and so many clues about who God is, even in this list. And it, it begs the question to me, why did God decide to start the book of his new covenant with genealogy? So there's been about 400 years of silence since the last time the people of God have record of him speaking. And so they haven't heard a peep from him in a long time. And this is how he chooses to restart the conversation. And if it's me, I'm probably going to put a little more action near the front to hook the reader. But he decided on a list of names. So let's dig in and see what he has to say. One thing that this genealogy does, just practically, in the ancient Israel context, it would have served a really practical purpose to defend and legitimize the lineage of Jesus because he was connected to the son, he was the son of Abraham, he was connected to Abraham, the father of Israel, and he was also connected to David, and it proved that he had a legitimate right to inherit the throne of David and rule and reign in Israel on the earth. Um, but in looking over this list this week, I just felt like the Lord was whispering that he wove this other beautiful little golden thread through this list. And as I look at this list, I just see the words, Father, Father, Father mother, father, over and over and over. And I feel like that is just this little hint from God that from the very beginning, he wove into the foundation of his new covenant of grace, his desire for his people to know 
both the father heart of God and the mother heart of God. And he, as he unveils this new covenant of grace, he's revealing himself as father to his people. And if we don't know him as father, then we live untethered. We don't know who we really are. We don't know where we came from or where we're going. But if we only engage with the fatherly masculine aspects of God, we're also missing out on so much that he has intended for us. And I think he gives us these hints when he puts these women in here that he also has a mother heart. And he offers us tenderness and kindness. He is both strong and nurturing. He's fierce and he's kind. He's loving and he's protective. And I'm not saying that we have to start addressing God as mother or that all women are soft and all men are harsh. My sweet husband has always been more tender-hearted than I've ever been. <laughs> but I am saying that in the heart of God is this full range of emotion and expression. And historically, in my own experience, and I think in the experience of the church, we have shied away from the tender side of God. And just a little bit of my own story here. In the last couple of years, the Lord has totally rewired my heart, connected my heart in ways that I had disconnected from for my whole entire life. And so on, on that note, um, I just want to give you a little disclaimer. The Lord has convicted me not to apologize to you if I become emotional as I'm talking today because tears and a moved, softened heart is evidence of his presence. And I won't try to shut that down or explain it away, even though you need to know everything in my flesh wants to. I don't like it at all. But I welcome it as a gift. And so I just encourage you and I welcome you Anything he stirs in you, feel it all the way. So, why did he choose these particular women that we see? Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth and later Mary. Why these women? Why would he not choose to identify himself with the matriarchs of the faith? Why not Sarah? or Rachel, or Rebecca. Instead, he chose outcasts and grief-stricken widows and foreigners and enemies and women marked by scandal. And I think it's because they and their stories paint this beautiful picture of who he is and who he came for. It just shows us a picture of his heart. So today we are going to look at Ruth. And I've always heard her story and just felt disconnected from it. It just didn't really do anything for me. 
so when Jonathan asked if I would speak about her, I was kind of like, sure, I guess. I mean, I know she did good and stuck with her mother-in-law. Cool. (laughs) But the Lord this past week has totally endeared Ruth to me. And he has given me his heart for her. And so I hope you hear that today. Um, we, I just want to look at how her story connects us to the Messiah. Why did he want to be identified with her as one of his mothers for all of time in history? And um, if you want to turn to Ruth, you are welcome to. It is a little book in the Old Testament just after Judges. It's only four chapters, um, but it is packed with goodness. So I'm, I'm going to kind of zoom through some of the stuff today because we don't have time to cover all four chapters. But I would encourage you to really dig in this week and read it all because there's so much beauty in there. Um, practically speaking, the book of Ruth is similar to Matthew's genealogy in that it's thought that the prophet Samuel wrote this book to prove that David had a legitimate right to reign in Israel. And the reason that needed to be defended was because Ruth, his great-grandmother, was not from Israel. She was a Moabite, which means she was from a place called Moab. And Israel and Moab had this long and sordid history of conflict. They were not friends in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, since the time of the Exodus, um, Moses actually pronounced, in essence, a curse over Moab and over the descendants of Moab. And we see in Deuteronomy 23 that um, Moses spoke this as a punishment over them. No Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread or water on your way out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, a guy, to (laughs) pronounce a curse on you. So the Moabites have been living under this punishment, this curse, for generations. And they had been kept out. And Israel had rules about who could govern, just like we have in our nation today. I'm sure you can imagine the stir it would cause if someone in a high governmental position, it turned out that they didn't actually meet the requirements for eligibility to hold office. We would, there would be a big old kerfluffle and we would oust them. So same in Israel. They, Samuel needed to present this so that people would know David had a right to be on the throne. Um, But Ruth, the whole book of Ruth is also this beautiful work of literature. And her story is woven so tightly with her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Boaz that it was a real challenge for me in preparing to just focus on Ruth. Um, but she is the one that is named, and I really wanted to just focus on her story alone. So I... I'm going to just give you some overview of the pieces of her story, and then we'll just zoom in in a few places in the actual text. Um, So, we first meet Ruth in Moab. 
she met and married a man who was from Israel. Israel. He had moved with his family, family from Bethlehem because there was famine in Israel and there was no food. So they had to leave their home country and move to Moab in order to survive. Um, sadly, her husband, who his name was Malan, um, his father, Elimelech, died shortly after they moved to Moab. So Ruth marries into this family, and her new family now consists of herself, her husband, Malan, his brother, Killian, and his wife, Orpah, who also was from Moab, and then her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is now a widow. Um, they lived there together in Moab for a long time, and we actually see evidence throughout the book that they truly loved each other. This was a family full of love. Um, but after about 10 years, tragedy struck again, and death found them. And Malan and Killian both died. We are not told how or why they died, but we know that grief and heartache descended on this household of these three now widows. And at some point in their grief and, and wondering, where do we go from here? How are we going to keep going? Naomi hears that back in Israel, the Lord has come to the aid of his people and he's provided food. So she thinks, we got to go there. We, I got to go back home. So she packs up her daughters-in-law and all of they, everything that they own and they decide to return to Bethlehem. So they load down their wagons with all their earthly possessions and head out and they start their journey back toward Judah, but they get to the road that will lead home and she stops short. And this is where I wanna zoom in and actually read some of the text. So this is chapter one, starting in verse eight. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And they said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? And then she goes on to give them this big, tearful, heartfelt speech about why they should just cut their losses and go back home and start over. There's nothing for them where she's going. And it's clear to me that Naomi is swimming in pain. She is drowning in her grief. She's lost her husband and both of her sons. And she has no one left except these two women who have become like daughters to her. But she knows that when she shows back up in Bethlehem with two Moabite daughters-in-law in tow, they are not going to be accepted there. Moses himself declared it. So I just know that the closer she got to that road, the more fear and uncertainty plagued her. And so 
she just tried to convince them to go. Eventually, after a lot of talking and crying and begging, Orpah decided to return to her home. But Ruth, we're told, refused to leave Naomi's side. She clung to her. And I can just picture this scene. This busy road with dust being kicked up by all the travelers coming and going. And these two widows with all their earthly possessions parked on the shoulder, causing a scene, begging, holding on to each other, weeping, imploring. And this place is where we see Ruth speak these beautiful words that she's become famous for throughout the ages. And this is verse 16 in chapter 1. Ruth replied to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you. Now this is covenant language. We've heard God speak like this before. And Ruth actually isn't part of God's covenant promise with Israel, but her words echo his, and they remind us of his faithfulness and how he will never, ever leave us. So, Ruth and Naomi make the seven to ten day trip back to Bethlehem. And they arrive just as the barley harvest is starting. So this is probably late spring. Um, verse 19 of chapter 1 says, The whole town was stirred because of them. So, sure enough, the whole town's talking. And they did have property to return to, but they had not been there during planting season, and they hadn't been there to cultivate crops or grow anything. So there was nothing for them to harvest, and they still had no food. So one morning, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go out into the fields and gather grain behind anyone who will let me. And she is referring to this law that made provision in Israel for anyone in need. So Israelites were commanded to leave the edges of their fields unharvested and then also to not make a second pass over the field as they're gathering. So anything that falls is just to be left for um, anyone in need to come behind and pick up. So Ruth goes and finds a field and she works all day. And she works hard until about lunchtime when the landowner, a man named Boaz, shows up. Now, again, the whole town has been talking, so Boaz had already heard of her, but he didn't recognize her. So he asked his foreman, who, who is that? And his foreman said, that's the Moabite, the one that came back with Naomi. But she asked if she could glean here, and she's been working hard all day, and she's only taken one short rest. So Boaz calls her over, and he already has 
a great deal of respect for her because he's heard of her. Um, and he says, you can glean here as long as you like. Don't go to anyone else's fields. Stay here, work with my servant girls because you'll be safe. I've already told all my men not to touch you or bother you. And if you need water, the water's over there. And are you hungry? It's lunchtime. You, you want to come have a meal with my workers? And Ruth is overwhelmed by his kindness. And she says, this is chapter 2, verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So again, we see that Ruth, her reputation has preceded her. And Boaz already really respects her because of what he's heard about her. So at the end of the day, Ruth threshes all the barley that she gathered, and she ends up carrying home about 48 pounds of grain to Naomi. And Naomi is stunned. She says, where did you work all day? Where did you get this? Whose field did you work in? And Ruth is like, some guy named Boaz. I don't, I just went. And she tells him about, she tells Naomi about her day. And Naomi says, we're related to him. He's actually one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, a kinsman redeemer is another provision in the law that provided for if a man died for his property, his offspring, his whole family, everything to stay within his family for his legacy to continue. And it, it's hard for us to understand in our current cultural context because we don't operate this way. But the law was that if a man died, his brother or another close relative had the legal duty to step in to redeem the brother's offspring, property, wife, and keep his name going. Um, so his name would not disappear from the earth. Um, so Naomi knows that Boaz is eligible to be a kinsman redeemer. But she doesn't do anything with that information just yet. So we do already see how faithful God's hand is in guiding Ruth to the exact field where she is supposed to be that will eventually lead to her flourishing. And for the next several months, Ruth goes every single day, day in and day out, and she works in these fields. Um, then at the end of the harvest, Naomi, so this is several months later, Naomi decides, now's the time. It's time to seal this deal and put a ring on it. <laughs> um, she wants to secure her future and her daughter-in-law's future. So she instructs Ruth to go clean up, spritz on a little perfume, put on your best clothes, and then head on down to the threshing floor 
where tonight Boaz will be spending the night with all of his men. They'll have celebrated the harvest and then they'll be guarding the piles of grain that they have gathered. And so Ruth does everything Naomi tells her. We don't see that she asks a single question. She just says, okay. So we're in chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned. There was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Now, I have always heard that uncover his feet was a euphemism for something a little saucier, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. But after a good bit of research, because I could not let that go, and because of how Boaz refers to Ruth um, in verse 11 of chapter 3 is that she is known as a woman of noble character, I've come to the conclusion that her actions that night were actually not scandalous at all. That she acted morally and legally, honorably and upright. But also it was very clear to Boaz that her actions were a legitimate proposal of marriage and a request for him to step in as the kinsman redeemer. Boaz actually gladly accepts this proposal, but he has a few legal ducks that he needs to get lined up. And the very next day, he goes and he takes care of that because someone else is actually in line ahead of him to be the redeemer. Um, but he goes and takes care of that and he says, um, he goes to the town square and takes care of things with the elders and then actually receives a blessing to take her into his home and redeem the property, redeem Ruth and Naomi and the offspring that they'll have. Then in chapter 4, we see that um, when they married, it says that Boaz went to Ruth and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son and they named him Obed. So when Obed is born, Ruth hands her precious firstborn son over to Naomi, her mother-in-law who she loves. Her mother-in-law who had been crushed by loss and grief for all these years. And we don't actually see Naomi's reaction but I can picture she sat him on her lap and she caressed that downy little newborn head and she snuggled him into the crook of her neck and she inhaled that fresh baby scent and the light returned to her eyes and we know that something shifted in her because the response of all of her friends and the women in town was that they broke out in worship 
the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the God of Israel, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, gave him birth. And then we see the story end with more genealogy. And we see that Obed grows up to become the father of Jesse, who then becomes the father of David, who would be king. So what is it about Ruth's story that connects us to the Messiah? From one angle, I think it paints this picture of the kind of person Jesus came to save. She was an outsider, a foreigner. She represented the enemies of God, the enemies of the people of God. She was had, in grief. She had suffered loss so deeply. And she had no one to defend her or provide a future for her, protect her, provide for her. She just was alone. And he says over and over that he goes after that one. That the one who is far off, he'll bring near. The outsider, he'll graft in. And in Ephesians 2, Paul actually is talking to people just like Ruth. And he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. And you were foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then on down in 17, he says that he came and preached peace to you who were near and to those who were far. And that through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So Jesus stepped into humanity and he brought every single one of us close, no matter how far we are or were. He brings us in. And then he even goes a step farther and he gives us the gift of his spirit that lives in us all the time. And in Acts 2, Peter on Pentecost actually was talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this gift and this promise is for all who are far off. And I think that is so beautiful. There is no one that's too far. No one is excluded. No one is left outside. He comes because that's who he came to save. So another way that I feel like we can look at Ruth's story is that she actually is a picture of the Messiah herself. She gives this prophetic foreshadowing, this hint of the kind of savior that's coming. Her name actually means faithful companion. And that is exactly who Jesus is. 
He is our faithful companion, always with us, never, ever leaving us. He clings to us like Ruth clung to Naomi. Nothing will separate us, not even death. Another beautiful way that I think she foreshadows the Messiah is in the breaking of the curse that was spoken over Moab. So we remember that even into the 10th generation, they were not permitted from entering the presence of God. And wouldn't you know that Boaz is 11 generations from Abraham. Isn't God amazing? Like, he fulfills his word and he brings us in and he breaks every curse and he reverses every punishment. He draws us near. And Ruth becomes this living testimony of that kind of Messiah. Her story overall is this picture of God's covenant faithfulness. And even though we don't really see or hear God directly in the story, we see these people looking at their lives through the lens of faith and recognizing that God is faithful in every moment. We saw him guide Ruth to the right field. We saw him connect her to Boaz, who was eligible to redeem. We just see him all throughout, even in enabling her to conceive. Like, all of it they attribute to his faithfulness. And I really feel like, even in this Advent season, it felt so significant to me that Jesus the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So her story is this beautiful picture of God with us in the everyday. It's God with us in loss and in grief. It's God with us on the road to uncertainty. It's God with us toiling and sweating in the fields day after day. It's God with us when we don't know what's happening next. And in the prospect of a new life, and a new family, and a new hope. It's the prospect of him bringing peace in the midst of our pain, and him restoring and redeeming everything we've lost. That is who he is. He is with us. He makes his home in us. Isn't it wild that he would choose broken, frail humanity to dwell with, to make his home with every moment when he has literally everything at his disposal. He chose us. I can't get over that, honestly. We see from Genesis to Revelation, the plan all along was for God to dwell with his people. We see it in the garden and in the tabernacle and in the temple and we see it in the church at Pentecost. And then we even see in Revelation that, uh, there it is, um, he 
at the end, that's his goal, is he wants to dwell with us. And so John, when he had this prophetic vision, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's that covenant language again. It echoes throughout history, throughout all of time and all of his story. That is his desire, to be with us, to dwell with us in every moment, in the everyday. So I had to ask him why. I ask him why a lot. Why would you choose us when you could do so many other things? And he just took me to Ephesians 1. And it, it says that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, which is the work of Jesus. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. So he's making us his family in accordance with his pleasure and will. What does that even mean? It simply means that he did what he did. He chose us, he chose to dwell with us because he wanted to, he willed it, and because it gives him pleasure. He enjoys it. He enjoys being with us, making his home in us, dwelling with us. And that's it, that's all there is to it. He is with us in every moment of every day because he delights in us. And I think all of that, how all of that portrays him, how it points to him and who he is, it reveals his heart. I think those reasons and probably a million more is why he wanted Ruth's story to be told for all time because it shows who he is. He's faithful and he's kind and he's with us. So I actually feel like this morning, we're gonna wrap up and I'm gonna invite the band back up, but I really have sensed that the Lord wants to do some stuff in us this morning. I think he wants to meet us where we are and a couple of things. One, if you have felt like you're excluded or you're far off and you cannot get near to him, that maybe there's just something in your life, your pain or your past or even something inherent to the way you're wired, which is the lie I've believed, that I just can't get near him, I'm distant. He wants to tear down all of those lies today. I really sense that he wants you to know he sees you, he chooses you, he's with you, and he wants to make his home with you. The other thing that I think he wants to do is that if you are looking around your life, your everyday normal life, 
and you just can't see his hand of faithfulness. Maybe it's you're drowning in the mundane, the monotony. You've washed the same dishes 400 times. You've gone to work day after day at a job that sucks the life right out of you. You keep hitting the same relational snag in your relationships and it feels like things will never change. Or maybe you're exhausted and you feel like you can't catch a break or a breath. I think he wants you to know that he sees you too. And he wants to give you fresh vision and supernatural eyes to see your life through his lens, to see how up close and personal he is to you, that he's near, he is present, he is with you. So I'm just gonna pray over us and then if, if he's stirring anything at all in your heart or if you need prayer for anything, we're going to worship and our prayer team will be down here.